2009, October 26th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 22, The Family of the Sun, the first lecture in Unit 3, Life in the Solar System. Well, we're starting a new unit. We've, we've finished our discussion of life on the Earth, and we're going to begin a new unit talking about life in the solar system. How can we take the lessons we've learned about the existence of life on Earth, its history, and the conditions for life, and now go out into the solar system and look for other places where life might have gotten a foothold? Right now, the answer is pretty simple. We know there's life in the solar system right here on Earth. Is there life or was there life sometime in the past elsewhere in the solar system? Well, that's a question we don't know the answer to, but is an extremely active area of research today and has actually now worked its way into, in fact, has been in the planning for NASA missions to various worlds in our solar system up, up to the present day and certainly for the last couple of decades. So what we're going to, the goal of this section is to, is to over to this week and next, is to review, number one, bring you all up to speed on what the properties are of the solar system, what the solar system looks like today. And second, take what we've learned about life and ask, where do the conditions for life or where might conditions that are conducive to life exist in the solar system? And if we can find places where it might be reasonable to look, the next obvious question is, what should we be looking for? And so that's really what the, the topics of this section, which we're going to call life in the solar system. But today, we need to actually have a common language. We need to step back a little bit, and I can say hooray for the next few days. It's going to be astronomy. I actually feel really comfortable with this now. I can, not coasting, but certainly can work my way through this stuff. We're going to t today just give you a quick and dirty overview of the contents of our solar system. So the sun, the terrestrial planets, the Jovian planets, the dwarf planets, the giant moons, the trans-Neptunian objects, and of course all the other junk, which has been important, asteroids, comets, and meteorites. And the one simple fact comes out of this that all the planets lie in nearly the same plane and orbit in the same general direction, but that does not apply, for example, to the dwarf planets or to the trans-Neptunian objects and the various asteroids, comets, etc. So we're going to look at the basic properties of our solar system and see what we can learn today. <coughs> Well, this is a particularly good subject because we actually, right now, are living in the golden age of solar system exploration. It really began in the 1960s with the first spacecraft we sent away from the Earth to the Moon and later to Mars and, and Venus. But in the last few decades, our knowledge of the solar system has simply exploded. We, we've learned far more in the last few decades than we've learned in the previous few thousand years of studying the solar system. At this point, we've used primarily robotic spacecraft. We've only sent people up to the moon. That's as far away as we've ever gotten as far as truly extraterrestrial. But these robotic spacecraft have done some simply marvelous things. Just to give a, a brief list here, we have landed 12 men on the moon and returned them safely back to Earth with a few hundred kilograms worth of rock samples from a variety of terrains. We've put robotic landers on the surfaces of the moon, Venus, Mars, the giant moon of Saturn, Titan, and on at least one asteroid. A second landing didn't actually come off as planned. We've returned about 400, I think total is about 360, 400 kilograms worth of rock samples from the moon. We've also returned very small samples collected from cometary tails. We have not yet re returned actual samples from Mars. We've gotten them through indirect ways, as we'll see later this week. We've dropped probes into the atmospheres of the planets Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and of course Titan, the giant moon Saturn. We've flown spacecraft by every single one of the eight planets at this point. The only large solar system bodies that have not been visited by spacecraft are in the outermost solar system, Pluto and Eris. 
But even there, there is a mission on its way to Pluto, which will arrive sometime in the 20-teens. We've flown spacecraft, well, I'm sorry, we've had extensive exploration of Mars, has been in progress for the better part of a decade, including now the three ro uh, robotic rovers, which can wander around and actually take direct samples, two of which have far, far surpassed their mission lifetimes and have just revealed a tremendous amount about the planet Mars. We'll learn some about that over the next, you know, later this week and early next week, because Mars is really if you haven't been paying attention in the news, is really the focus of our search for life, and the solar system is really focused on the planet Mars. We've been, uh, flown uh, radar mappers to get detailed terrain maps through heavy clouds. We've flown by asteroids and comets. And like I said, we've got actually spacecraft now on their way to the outer solar system. We've learned just a huge amount from all of these various robotic spacecraft. I have a lot of good memories about a lot of the missions that, that came out of, especially the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Uh, on one hand, I'm biased because JPL was run by Caltech, my alma mater, um, so we're very proud of that achievements there. But they've really been uh, planetary exploration central, not the only places. The John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, for example, has given us the Messenger spacecraft, which has just made its third pass by um, the planet Mercury, and which in a couple of years will actually be dropping into orbit around the planet Mercury and giving us the first detailed maps of the surface of that world. But certainly the Jet Propulsion Laboratory has had a large number of successes. I'm, I'm particularly fond of the Voyager spacecraft. These were the first spacecraft that got into the outer solar system, first past Jupiter and then to Saturn. They're, they were designed to go maybe to Saturn if they were lucky. In fact, Voyager 2 went on to pass by both Uranus and Neptune and is still transmitting from the outer reaches of the solar system. I have a lot of great memories of this because the first Jupiter mission that passed by Voyager 1 going by Jupiter, which gave us spectacular views of the Galilean world, um, was going on when I was a senior in high school. And the one and only t time in my entire academic career that I skipped high school and hid out was when I came in in the morning and there was the public television station from Los Angeles was showing live pictures from JPL of of the planet Jupiter, and they showed this picture of the moon Io, which is the, one of the most volcanically active worlds in the entire solar system. No one had ever seen it in that clarity, and it was the only day I skipped school because I simply was riveted to the tube watching these data come in. When Voyager 1, a couple of years later, made its pass by Saturn, I was a student at Caltech. They had monitors set up all over campus, giant screens in the uh, auditorium. Now, this is 1980s. This is 80s. This is not you know, big screen technology like today. But we were seeing the live data coming down from the spacecraft as the pictures were being taken, and they were simply spellbinding. And certainly the, the work that's been coming in from the Cassini and Huygens probes in orbit around Saturn have just completely changed our view of these worlds, the Galileo probe around Jupiter. We're going to be looking at a lot of the data from these spacecraft over the next couple of days. Oops, that's an interesting little PowerPoint glitch. Okay. The family of the sun can be divided up into four basic classes of bodies. Some of these will be familiar to you, others are not. For example, the terrestrial planets are the four rocky inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, shown here with their relative sizes. The Jovian planets, the, gas gi the giant planets of the outer solar system, are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Older textbooks would have called all of these gas giants, but in fact, in the last few years, we've begun to recognize that Uranus and Neptune really are different than Jupiter and Saturn in their detailed structure. Jupiter and Saturn are the largest planets in our solar system. They are the gas giants. Uranus and Neptune are the next rank down in size, and they turn out to be the ice giants. What we see is basically large gas-covered ice balls. 
a new classification of objects in the solar system, courtesy of the International Astronomical Union in 2006, was a class we refer to as dwarf planets, of which there are currently five of these, one of which is a rocky body series, the largest of what we used to call the largest of the asteroids. And then Pluto, which in some sense was people have said it's demoted from being a planet, but in fact it's been properly reclassified into its physical class. Because with the discovery of Eris, which was in fact larger than Pluto, out in the, in the, in the icy realms beyond the orbit of the planet Neptune, and then later Haumea and Makemake, which were discovered all, Eris, Haumea, and Makemake were all discovered by a team at Caltech led by Mike Brown. These four icy bodies of the outer solar system are but scratching the surface of a very large class of objects in the outer, in the outer solar system that are the leftover construction debris of the solar system. These dwarf planets hold a very special place, in fact, because they may be the biggest carriers of not only volatiles like water ices and other gases, but may, in fact, be good carriers of organic materials, really certainly proto-organic materials. And finally, when we get down to the really small stuff, don't sweat the small stuff except when one of them's big and going to whack into you like an asteroid and might cause an extinction event, are the small solar system bodies. And there are two basic divisions among the small solar system bodies by composition. There's a very large class of objects which are basically composed of ices, basically frozen water, frozen carbon dioxide, methane, and ammonia. These are called the Kuiper Belt objects, and occasionally when they drop into the inner solar system, they briefly fluoresce as comets. And then finally, the rocky bodies, which are the asteroids and meteoroids. And we're going to go through in this lecture each one of these classes. Yes, sir? Uh, I heard a long time ago that Pluto was eventually going to start that's incorrect, and and we might talk about that later. Pluto, Pluto is um, in an interesting. Well, it's an interesting situation because Pluto is actually strongly affected by the gravity of Neptune, but it's in a different way than most people think. Pluto complete, completes two orbits for every exact three that Neptune completes. That exact whole number ratio is what's called a, a resonance. So what's happening is Pluto is actually in the orbit it is because it was forced into that orbit by the, by the gravity of Neptune. Neptune's slowly moving out over the course of the solar system. Very small amount. Jupiter, in fact, moves in a little bit during the course of this period. Um, and this is over the entire history of the solar system. These kinds of resonant objects actually will not collide with the body which is doing their forcing. In fact, they're kept locked in those higher orbits. They, the orbits do cross but they don't cross in the same phase. They're always over on the same part of the orbit. So it gives the impression that, ooh, it'll crash, but in fact, it never comes anywhere close. It's a very good question, but it's, it's, uh, the solar system can be a dynamically very interesting and also very confusing place. We're not going to deal too much with solar system dynamics in this class because we're more concerned with what the surfaces are. Now, this is a complicated plot, but I want to show it because it contains so much information and it actually is one we're going to come back to in various guises a lot. What this plots is on the x-axis here, I've plotted the size of the orbit measured as the semi-major axis in astronomical units, going from a tenth, one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, and finally a hundred thousand AU. hundred thousand AU is about a little, little under halfway to the nearest star. On the vertical axis, I've plotted the mass of the body in units of the mass of the Earth. You may remember that homework assignment from a couple weeks ago. And the range we have here is tremendous. There are 14 orders of magnitude on this diagram between objects like Jupiter, which are 318 times the mass of the Earth, to the smallest asteroids we've been able to track, which are getting down to about one ten trillionth 
the mass of the Earth. So there's a huge range of stuff. Not surprisingly, big things are rare and small things are exceedingly common. In red, we see the eight planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune in their order outward through the solar system. So the outermost planet, Neptune, is sitting out here at 30 astronomical units. Jupiter out here at five, and then of course Mar Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars within the inner one and a half astronomical units. In orange, I've put a couple of the giant moons. For example, the Earth's moon, the four big moons, the Galilean moons of Jupiter, the giant moon Titan around Saturn, and the moon Triton around the planet uh, Neptune. <coughs> In bright purple are the five dwarf planets. Haumea and Makemake actually occupy a very similar place on this diagram, even though their orbits are in completely different planes. So these things you can see are sitting at a slightly smaller size. The largest of the dwarf planets is starting to get up into the realm of the giant moons. The giant moons are a little bit more massive, but what distinguishes Pluto and Eris, for example, from the giant moons of Jupiter is that these guys, Pluto and Eris, are orbiting the sun, whereas the giant moons of Jupiter are orbiting Jupiter. That's one of the criteria for being a dwarf planet is you've got to be orbiting the sun. And then below that, first in green, this mass of green here, are thousands of asteroids which lie in a main belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And in fact, they're actually herded into that position by the gravity of Jupiter. Similarly, out in the outer solar system, this blue fuzz here are what are called the Kuiper Belt objects or trans-Neptunian objects. They live in the space out beyond Neptune. Pluto, Eris, Haumea, and Makemake are simply the largest of the class of these trans-Neptunian objects. And they, are too, are subject to this gravitational herding effect, gravitational resonance. In this particular case, it's a gravitational resonance with the outermost of the giant planets, Neptune. And then you get a great emptiness. Now, there really is emptiness out here, or is there something? The problem is, it's so far away, the objects are tiny and faint. There are certainly no large objects out in here. Maybe one or two that can get out there. I believe this is Sedna out here, one of the most distant objects we've ever seen. But you have to get way out to 10,000 astronomical units before you get to a place called the Oort Cloud, which is probably the reservoir of the long period comets. And finally, at 100,000 astronomical units away from the solar system, you reach what's called the tidal radius. That's the radius at which the gravity of nearby passing stars would take away any bodies that were trying to orbit the sun. The gravity of the sun would be so weak that this is basically what's called the tidal stripping radius. So the solar system is dynamically defined by the sun. It's the central gravity well. It provides more than 99.9% .9 of the mass of the solar system. But the rest of the solar system is dominated dynamically by pretty much Jupiter, and then, to a lesser degree, by Neptune, which actually has a role in sculpting, if you will, the orbits of small bodies like asteroids and Kuiper Belt objects. But you'll notice right away, and this is what's hiding behind that reclassification of Pluto, is that the objects in the solar system very neatly bunch into certain groups by both where they are in the solar system and how massive they are. In the inner solar system, we only find fairly low-mass objects in the planetary region, Whereas in the outer solar system, we get very much bigger objects. Rocky objects, asteroids, are found in the inner portions of the solar system, icy bodies in the outer part of the solar system. And there's kind of this middle zone here where in terms of size, the giant moons and the dwarf planets kind of overlap in their physical properties.
So this starts telling us where we're likely to start looking for life. We're going to be wanting to look for places primarily where there's liquid water, where there's energy like sunlight or other sources of energy to provide for the chemical energy that goes on within the processes of life. Very likely, and I can kind of give away the story, is we're going to be looking in this zone here. We're going to be looking among objects which are either giant moons, the inner terrestrial planets, or maybe, even though it may seem kind of odd, some of these frozen bodies of the outer solar system. There's going to be reasons why we're going to be looking there. I'll just give this to you as a preview. We're going to see this picture a number of times. So this is just our first encounter with it. It's, it's got a tremendous amount of information in it. Okay, so let's take a look, quick look, a quick tour of the solar system for this class. It used to be when I taught astronomy, the solar system lecture was pretty much boilerplate. I could do it in my sleep because things hadn't changed since about 1930. Yeah, okay, a few more rocks, big deal. But things really began to pick up in the, in the late 1980s and early 90s when new telescope technologies began to come into play, which allowed us to begin to detect fainter and fainter objects in the outer solar system. Before that, there were nine planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. In fact, school kids learn little mnemonics. My very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. And that's how you could remember the order of the planets from the inside and out. And then in the 1990s, that all began to change. In 1998, the first of these outer solar system icy bodies began to be discovered. And with Mike Brown and his team coming up with new and better techniques in the early part of the 21st century, we now know of many hundreds of these objects a number of which got to be bigger than Pluto. And it was realized right away that Pluto being sort of the odd planet out was not simply the odd planet out, but the largest exemplar of an entirely new class of outer solar system icy bodies. So we now divide the solar system up as follows. Now, the, the, the relative sizes of the planets are represented here in this graphic, but not their distances, obviously, from the sun. This is the size of the sun in scale to the planets. If I wanted to do this in distance, they'd be all the way down the street and all the way and in, in this direction. They'd be way the heck up by High Street. I think Jupiter would be up around the Kroger or something up on East North Broadway. So we see the terrestrial planets. These are the Earth-like planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Next up are the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, followed by the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. See this progression moving outwards from rocky to rock, gas, and ice, to ice and gas. As you move further from the sun, you get into colder and colder realms. The final class that we have here, and this is the brand new ones, are the dwarf planets, of which Ceres is thus far the lone dwarf <coughs> planet of the inner portion of the asteroid belt, and it is the largest of the asteroids in the traditional um, sense. And then many, many more large objects in the cold outer reaches of the, icy, of the solar system Pluto and Eris are the two largest. Eris is currently the largest of the dwarf planets by far, followed by Pluto, and then Haumea and Makemake. And these are the divisions of objects within our solar system. Well, the eight planets all rotate in the same sense around the sun. They all rotate in a counterclockwise sense if you look down upon the north pole of the Earth as your reference point. Kind of provincial, but it kind of works for us. So we have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune out here in the outer solar system. And then if I zoom in to the middle, I see Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And you can get a sense of the elliptical orbits here. These are actual plots of the orbit shapes. Now, the first thing that jumps out at you when you look at this, and these are now in their appropriate scale, is the outer solar system orbits are, planets are very far apart, from Jupiter at 5 AU out to Neptune all the way at 30 astronomical units. And yet the, the terrestrial planets are packed within the inner 0.8 
to a little over 1.4 AU. So the terrestrial planets occupy this very small zone on the inner part of the solar system. And then once you get into the outer solar system, you get into the big empty. Less looking down on the solar system, if we look at the solar system from the side, we find another interesting fact. Nearly all of the orbits for the solar system, and I've plotted all of them here, they all smear together very close to a single line. This dotted line that I've drawn past here is the line of the orbit of Jupiter. Jupiter is the largest of the planets, and so it defines the dynamical plane of the solar system. And the Earth is only slightly tilted with respect to that plane. What we find is that there's a common plane for all of the major eight planets. Not only is there an eight pl is there a plane, but also the sense of the motion, the general orbital motion of these things all going around counterclockwise are in the same direction and more or less coplanar within a few degrees. What you're seeing is a dynamical memory of the original formation of the solar system. The sun was born out of a giant cloud of gas that collapsed in on itself and pancaked because it was able to fall down along its poles and held up by centrifugal effects on its rotating equator. So if you had any kind of rotating sphere, it's going to basically pancake along its poles. The central portion of this became the proto-sun, and the surrounding di disk and gas of material is the raw material out of which the planets and all the contents of the solar system formed through this process of dynamical evolution. It's kind of beyond the scope of this class to talk in detail about planet formation theory, but bear in mind that, that what we're seeing in the general sense of rotation of the planets and the flattening is a dynamical memory. It's setting in motion these things, and the laws of physics will keep them in motion once we've set them in place. And we're going to see this recapitulated throughout the universe, or certainly where we look for places where young stars are forming and planetary systems are forming. We're going to find this common dynamical plane. It's part of what defines the place of the solar system for the big bodies. The small bodies, however, are not so constrained, per se, to be in this plane due to a variety of dynamical effects which can tend to push them out of the plane. And in fact, they can even orbit in exactly the opposite direction for a variety of reasons having to do with mostly the effects of the gravity of Jupiter upon these objects. So let's take a tour from the inside out of the contents of our solar system. At the center lies the sun, the, the, the head of the family of the sun. It is m composed mostly of hydrogen and helium. In fact, it's basically 99% hydrogen and helium. The remaining 1% is all the rest of the periodic table combined in that last 1%, or actually less than 1%. If you add it up carefully, you find it contains 99.8% the mass of the sun. I always say 99.9% because .9 I always misspeak, but it's 99.8. That's still an awful lot. So the last two one-thousandths of the mass of our solar system is all the planets, all the rocks, all the comets, everything else including us. The approximate age of the sun is about 4.6 billion years, just a shade older than the Earth. In fact, it's within a few hundred million years of the Earth, and that's consistent with the time lag between the formation of a star and the formation of planets out of the leftover material that went into forming that star. Now, we're going to say more about stars when we go into the next unit on life in the universe, but the basic fact you want to carry away is the sun shines today because it is hot. Its surface temperature is about 5,800 degrees Kelvin, which gives it kind of a nice sort of yellow glow that we see on a nice sunny day like today. It emits mostly visible, ultraviolet, and infrared light. Again, a fact we're going to return to in the later section about life outside of our solar system. What keeps the sun hot, what keeps it shining for a long period of time, which is good because evolution and, and the development of planets requires billions of years, 
is that deep inside of its core, the crushing weight of the, of the material in the sun heats the core to 15 million degrees Kelvin. At 15 million degrees Kelvin, four protons can fuse into a single nucleus of helium and emit and release a great deal of nuclear energy. This nuclear fusion energy is the primary energy source for stars. And again, we'll say more about that later in the class. But what you're really having is helium is being built up from hydrogen via this high temperature thermonuclear fusion process. The amount of, of the sun, the portion of the sun that partakes in this fusion is only 10% of its mass, buried down in the deep core. But that even that 10% of the mass can provide for all of the sun's energy needs for approximately 10 billion years. So the sun is about 4.6 billion years old. It can shine by hydrogen fusion for 10 billion years old. That's why I call the sun a middle-aged star. It's about halfway at this point through its hydrogen burning lifetime, as we call it. And after the hydrogen runs out, it will be making hydrogen into helium. A series of changes occur inside the sun, which will give it another billion years shining by a helium fusion into carbon and oxygen. Now again, this is not as relevant for us today, but it was going, this, this fact of that stars have a life cycle, stars, if you will, evolve or develop over their life cycles, has various implications for the Earth and for life in the solar system. Life on the Earth is possible today because of four and a half billion years of evolution powered mostly by sunlight. It's going to continue on Earth for at least a while, but it's going to be endangered by the changes in the sun. And maybe life will either move elsewhere in the solar system, or maybe it emerged elsewhere in the solar system in the past. And when we start looking at other stars, we're going to take the lessons from our particular star and apply them to the other ones and try to learn about what are the habitable zones, for example, around other stars. Kind of a preview of what's coming up. Next out in order through the solar system. The inner solar system is actually a pretty empty place. There are a few rocks, some Earth-crossing asteroids and things like that that we talked about on Friday. But the real dynamical stars of the inner solar system outside the Sun are the four terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And I've listed them here in order. They're shown in their photographs from spacecraft in their pr proper proportions. So these are the proportional sizes of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And I've listed underneath their names their mass in the mass of the Earth, M sub e. We're going to use Earth masses a lot here, so kind of get used to seeing them. Obviously, the Earth is one Earth mass. These are the rocky planets. They live in the inner 0.4 to 1.5 astronomical units from the Sun. They have solid surfaces. They're composed mostly of silicates with iron, and they're all differentiated bodies. The iron and heavy metals have sunk to the middle. The silicates have floated up to the top. So they all have solid surfaces. And of the four, Venus, Earth, and Mars actually have reasonably dense atmospheres. Obviously, the atmosphere of the Earth we've been very interested in for a while. We're going to talk a little bit in later lectures about the atmosphere of Venus and Mars in comparison to that of the Earth. Why is it different? The other signpost of these worlds that tells us they're made of rock and metal throughout is their density. Density is the amount of mass per unit volume. Just take the total mass of a planet, divide by its volume in cubic centimeters, and you get a number called the mean density. And the average density of, of the terrestrial planets is, is big by comparison to other things in the solar system, between 3.9 and 5.5 grams per cc, grams per cubic centimeter. To compare for basis why I like this unit, water at standard temperature and pressure is one gram per cc. So one cubic centimeter of water has a mass of one gram. So these things are between four and five and a half times more dense than water. And that gives you an idea that they're made of rock. 
primarily. Whenever you see that kind of density, it's rock. The Jovian planets, the next set of planets out in the solar system, are the giants of the outer solar system. They're located between 5 and 30 astronomical units from the sun. The smallest of them is 15 times the mass of the Earth. So we've gone through a huge jump in mass. In the inner solar system, Earth is king, but not by very much. In the outer solar system, Jupiter is the king of the solar system at 318 times the mass of the, of the Earth. Saturn just behind at 95. And then Uranus and Neptune are a sudden drop down between 15 and 17 Earth masses, respectively. These things have a lot of mass, but they're also really, really big. And their average densities are very small. They range between 0.7 grams per cc and 1.6 grams per cc which tells you that they're very lightweight. They're made of mostly gas or a gas and ice mixture at the high end. Saturn is the lowest density planet in the entire solar system. It's got a density of 0.7 grams per cc. The usual sing-song I'm now obligated by my astronomy union card to tell you now is that if, if you could find a bathtub big enough, Saturn would float in water. Well, that's, of course, nonsense because gravity and other things would take over. You couldn't make a tub of water that big, but that's basically the, the vision here is Saturn is really big and puffy. There's no solid surfaces on any of these worlds. Even if these things are ice giants, there's nowhere to stand. These basically are gas balls or so dense that they're denser than the de deepest oceans. So these things don't have solid surfaces. These are probably places we would not go looking for life. And the reason is because there's nowhere for life to stand, nowhere to lay down roots. That isn't to say there isn't some kind of funky cloud-floating life you can imagine, but we can't imagine such a thing, so we're going to kind of leave that off and be, well, we'll be welcomely surprised if we came across it, but as we'll see, it's kind of highly unlikely. These are very, very violently cold, high-radiation environments. They're pretty nasty places, and they're full of, of chemistry, which is primarily hydrogen-reducing chemistry, not the kinds of carbon <coughs> chemistry we, we want to have, for example, for life on the Earth. Well, the, Jovian, the giant Jovian planets divide themselves up neatly into two classes. And these are going to be important to us because it's these planets, these gas giants with thick hydrogen and helium atmospheres over central tiny rock and ice cores. Right now, when we've discovered something like 315, I think, is the, actually, it went up to almost 350 planets around other stars right now. Most of those planets are Jupiter-like or down to Saturn, Uranus, Neptune-like planets. But most of the planets we know of now outside the solar system are gas giants. They range from Jupiter and Saturn, which I show now here in this graphic, with the proper proportions to the size of the Earth. It really emphasizes these are really giant worlds. There are structures in the atmosphere of Jupiter that are bigger than our entire planet. So these are big gas balls. And in fact, if you look at the detailed composition of Jupiter and Saturn, they have much the same composition as the sun. These were formed out of the same gas and junk that the sun formed out of, but because their gravity is so big, they held on to hydrogen and helium. That's why they, they are gas giants. We'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later in the class. This is just sort of the big intro to the solar system. Uranus and Neptune are different. For a long time, people called them gas giants, but when we actually flew spacecraft by and studied in detail their sizes, they were uncomfortably dense. They seemed to be awfully dense for something made mostly of gas. They were a lot denser by a appreciable amount compared to Jupiter and Saturn. It's realized now that what Uranus and Neptune are are, in fact, they are ice giants. If you dig down through their deep 
um, relatively, actually relatively thin hydrogen and helium atmospheres, you will immediately come across a pretty much dirty, slushy mix of ice. Now, when I, when I say ice, don't think about ice on a pond in the wintertime. Think of water under extremely high compression. So we're talking about kind of a thick flowing mush that probably more resembles mantle rock in the earth than it does ice on a pond. And you're getting some of the idea there. Uranus and Neptune are between 15 and 17 times the mass of the earth, but they're fairly tightly packed. You can see compared to the earth, the earth is now standing up in size to these two um, fairly well. The ice giants are actually fairly interesting. They form in the outer parts of the solar system where the raw materials were very rich in ices. But most of the gas is beginning to thin out as you move away from the sun. So they're a natural planet to form in the deep outer reaches of the solar system. Jupiter and Saturn get all the gas. Uranus and Neptune don't have much gas to work with, but they do get a lot of ices. These are actually turning out to be interesting because planets of the size of Uranus and Neptune are starting to crop up in some of the planet searches and they're actually becoming relatively common. So they may in fact be a, a much more common mode of planet formation than we had uh, previously suspected. So they're very interesting from a variety of point of views. They get their blue color because of methane in their atmospheres. Methane is a strong absorber of red light. So sunlight coming in and bouncing off them and coming back out, the red light gets absorbed and the blue light just bounces back off, gives them their pretty blue color. <coughs> Once we get past the eight big planets, we get into a problem because now the denizens of the solar system multiply very rapidly and we get into the dwarf planets. The dwarf planets are an entirely new class of objects which were defined by the International Astronomical Union in 2006. The IAU is the international body that astronomers all belong to. I'm, I'm a member of the IAU. I, I don't actually get a union card, which is kind of a bugger, but you know, I, I, I do get to, I get to, do get to belong to them. They don't charge me dues, so it's actually pretty good. I just had to get my PhD, that's all. Um, and they show me a secret handshake, but I can't show that to you. Uh, the dwarf planets were defined by the IU. The, the IU is charged with giving names and nomenclature to things in the solar system. And for a long time, Pluto was the largest of the known icy outer worlds, so calling it a planet was no big deal. People were arguing, look, it's different, it doesn't fit, we really should redefine it, but the answer was, well, if it's, it's got to be redefined, where are the others? And that was, a, that was a pretty good argument, until about uh, the early years of the 21st century, when Eris was discovered, Eris was found to actually be larger than Pluto. So either it was the 10th planet or it was the largest of these outer solar system worlds. And so in 2005 and 2006, the issue got basically forced on the IAU to consider, and they came up with a criteria which is still controversial for redefinition of objects which are smaller than planets and often smaller than moons. I've shown in this picture here the Earth and the Moon to scale with the five current dwarf planets, Pluto and Eris, Makemake, Ceres, and Haumea. There are 40 other candidates. The other reason why they wanted to go in and redefine the, the dwarf planets as well was it was pretty clear the techniques for searching the outer solar system were going to give us 20, 30, 40 planets in the list. And the thought of fourth graders trying to come up with a, a mnemonic for memorizing 40 planets is just frightening. So. And they also realized that they were physically distinct. These are small objects. They're held in shape by gravity, but they're made mostly of ices except for Ceres, which is kind of a, a rock and a little bit of ice mixture. So they really belonged in a separate class. Calling it a planet was not helping you conceptually. 
And that's why we did the redefinition. But there's probably a huge number of these things. Right now, there are 40 objects with well-known orbits which are candidates to be classified as dwarf planets if they can meet the other criteria. Estimates are between 200 and 2,000 such objects in the outer solar system. So be thankful we don't have to learn their names. The other thing to distinguish them is not just their size, but their orbits. That picture I showed a couple slides back of the orbital plane of most of the eight planets are within a few degrees of this dotted line called the plane of the solar system. Here are the orbits of Ceres, Pluto, Haumea, and Eris. I, I dropped off Maki Maki because it was kind of messy. They're nowhere near the plane. They're tilted all over the place, and they're very, very eccentric. So even Pluto for a long time, stood out from the other planets. It was tilted 18 degrees out of the plane and very long and elliptical compared to the nearly circular or very lightly elliptical in-plane orbits of the planets. So these things really just don't fit in terms of size, composition, and dynamics the rest of the eight planets. And they really did deserve in their own, to be in their own class. Here's looking down on the solar system, showing you how elliptical the orbits, for example, of Eris and Pluto are, compared to, at this scale, the nearly circular orbits of the outer planets. You, they are slightly elliptical, but you just can't see it in this plot. In fact, given the light in this room, you can barely see the orbit of Neptune at all. So those are the things which we would call planets or dwarf planets. But there's a lot more going on, and you got kind of a hint when you saw the moon sitting there. The moon is a large spherical body which would be a perfectly good dwarf planet. In fact, it's almost, um, almost planet size. It's right in the zone between planet and not. But the only reason why we don't call it a planet or a dwarf planet is because it orbits the Earth, or at least it appears to orbit the Earth, or its orbit is controlled by the gravity of the Earth. There's a better way to put it. There are seven of the giant, giant moons, large spherical objects, some of which, like Ganymede, Titan, and Callisto, are actually bigger than Mercury and actually would be planets in their own right, except for the fact that Ganymede, Titan, Callisto, Io, Europa, and Triton are all orbiting one of the gas giants. Triton is the giant moon of Saturn. Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa are the giant moons of Jupiter. And Triton is the giant icy moon of Neptune. We're going to be meeting these worlds later individually, in particular because Europa and Titan give us particularly lessons for life, especially Europa. Europa is an ice ball which may in fact have extensive liquid water oceans underneath its ice cap and may be one of the most promising places in our solar system to search for life. We don't know yet how, but we're going to talk about that a little bit um, next week is when we get to Europa. So these are the giant moons and they're primarily found orbiting the giant outer planets. Once we get past the orbit of Neptune, we get into an, basically a class of objects where Here's where the astronomers kind of lost their imagination. They, get, they started finding a couple of these things, and they wanted to come up with a catchy way to describe them and say, well, we found these objects beyond the orbit of Neptune. So they sort of set, set where they were finding them in the solar system, so they called them trans-Neptunian objects, or TNOs. The name, unfortunately, well, descriptive is also stuck. It's not as good as planet or dwarf planet. It, there are dwarf planets among them. These are a very large class of small icy bodies that orbit as the name suggests, beyond the orbit of Neptune. They're kind of like the anti-asteroids. They're sitting on the outside of the solar system rather than trapped on the inside. They're made mostly of ices, so they have densities between 1.2 and 2 grams per cc. They include all of the icy dwarf planets, Pluto, Eris, Makemake, and Haumea. 
and a very much larger class of objects of which the icy dwarf planets are, some of which are members, called the Kuiper Belt, which lives between 30 and 50 astronomical units. The inner edge of the Kuiper Belt is basically defined by the orbit of Neptune. The Kuiper Belt objects are plotted here in red. So we have 30 astronomical units for the inner edge of the belt, and then the outer edge of the belt is out at 50 astronomical units. The inner and outer edges of the Kuiper belt are defined by orbital resonances with the planet Neptune. So just like the asteroids in the inner solar system are herded by the gravity of Jupiter, so too the Kuiper belt objects are herded into this fat belt by the gravity of Neptune. We also have out there fairly interesting things like the large moon of Pluto. Pluto has a moon, Charon, which is the largest moon to planet ratio in the entire, moon to dwarf planet ratio in the entire solar system. And then there's also a class of very large, very distant icy bodies, which have names like Sedna and Quar. A little bit of name about nomenclature. When you started hanging names on the cold bodies of the outer solar system, they started going for gods of the, gods and goddesses of the underworld, gods and goddesses of uh, creation and uh, fertil- uh, fertility generation, Genesis. You quickly run out of Greek and Roman names. So um, Sedna and Quar are, uh, Sedna comes from the Pacific Northwest, I believe it's Tlingit, and Quar is one of the, I can't forget the name of the Native American peoples who lived in the Los Angeles Basin before the arrival of the Spanish. The names are starting to get ridiculous. I'm actually starting to like the numerical designations now. They're, they're easier to pronounce than Quar. Here are the largest known of the trans-Neptunian objects. The four largest are, in fact, now designated all as dwarf planets. And you'll notice that of the four, three of the four have moons. In fact, uh, Pluto now has three moons around it. A couple were discovered a couple years ago. The others, Sedna, Orcus, Quar, and Varuna, also, Orcus and Quar also have moons, which is good because it allows us to measure their masses. These guys right now are candidate dwarf planets. They haven't quite fulfilled all the observational criteria because they're so far away and they're so hard to observe, we really haven't been able to pin down yet what their nature is. But these are the the largest of these, and they range all the way down into sizes of a few meter ice balls. So these are the objects of the the distant outer solar system, these trans-Neptunian objects. Well, let's come back a little bit closer. We've already met the asteroids, or at least in outline we've met asteroids, as the agencies of mass extinctions and impacts upon the Earth throughout the Earth's history. But the asteroids more generally are rocky or rock and metal aggregates. They're mostly solid bodies, but some of them may in fact just be self-gravitating piles of rubble, which live mostly in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. They lie in a belt between about... 1.8 1.8 and about uh, two and change astronomical units between Mars and Jupiter. Here's a couple of them with their names associated with them. Asteroids have double names. They have a number, which is an order given to them the, from, the, from the first discovered down to subsequent discovered. There was some size ordering originally, but then they kind of gave up. Asteroid numbers are now up into the hundreds of thousands by name. So um, you'll see a number, 253 Matilda, 951 Gaspra, 2343 Ida. I forget the number, 3463 Jerry Garcia. There's a whole bunch of them that have been named for people. So there's lots of different asteroids out there. They're named for the Beatles, Eric Clapton. I've never gotten one named for me yet. I haven't found one yet. That's probably why. These things are made mostly of rock and metal. Some of those, in fact, may have significant ice components to them. 
Um, certainly the chondrites seem to have a significant ice component. So their densities are kind of lower than that of the terrestrial planets. Remember the terrestrial planets were kind of three, three and change and five and a half grams per cc. The ice balls were one to two grams per cc. The gas giants are one to two grams per, or 0.7 to one and a half grams per cc. These guys are kind of in the middle between two and three grams per cc. And they range in size from a couple of hundred kilometers, but there's very few asteroids above 300 kilometers. I think there's eight of them, eight or nine asteroids above 300 kilometers in diameter. And they range down in size to large boulders getting down to a few meters. So there's many millions of these objects. In the main belt alone, there are estimated to be about 1.2 million objects larger than one kilometer in size. Here's the main belt. This is, again, the same plot we showed last, uh, last, last Thursday. The main belt here is bounded on the inside by the orbit of Mars, on the outside by this outer band. It turns out these, uh, these outer and inner boundaries are kind of fuzzy because the asteroids are actually on slightly elliptical orbits. And so when we take a snapshot, we're catching some going out and some going in. But the center and outer boundary are actually fairly well defined by orbital resonances with Jupiter. Basically, objects in the inner part of the uh, asteroid belt complete four orbits for every one orbit of Jupiter. And those on the outer part of the asteroid belt compute, complete two orbits around the Sun for every single orbit of Jupiter. You also see this pile up of the Trojan and Greek asteroids at 60 degrees angle from Jupiter. And you see a bunch of other things bouncing around in between. These bunch up, bunches up here are clear demonstrations of the of gravitational effect of Jupiter upon the asteroids. Final bits are meteors, which are the small bits of rock and metal ranging in size from grains of sand to boulders. They're made of stone or iron or even high carbon chondrites like the Murchison meteorite that occasionally enter our atmosphere and burn up as bright streaks. They're useful for delivering material to the Earth in small quantities in the present day. And finally, the comets are the very lowest density objects. They're visitors from the outer solar system. They're low density composites, dirty snowballs of rock and ice that start out in the Kuiper belt or the Oort cloud of the solar system, fall into or perturbed into the inner solar system, and when they pass by the sun, the gases and ices begin to evaporate. You draw these long, multi-million kilometer long tails behind them that give them their brief appearance in the sky like Comet Hale-Bopp a couple of years ago. So in quick tour, these are the denizens of our solar system, from the giant planets to the smallest leftover bits of construction debris. And now we're going to start taking a close look at the terrestrial planets and the other planets and their giant moons and start looking at where we're going to begin to search them for life. See you all tomorrow.